A warning to our listeners. It Was Simple contains descriptions of violence and language that is not suitable for every audience. Please be advised. What's the first thing you remember? Into the room to, to talk to them or to wake them up or something. Betty Broderick knew something about the layout of Dan and Linda Broderick's house. She'd gone there for this and that with the kids, and of course to steal Dan and Linda's wedding guest list. Books had been vanishing from Linda's bedside table in the second floor master bedroom. Linda had told their friend about it, the future Superior Court Judge Marshall Hockett, and told him too that Betty had surprised them in their own house one night, and Hockett said it scared the hell out of her. Before Halloween, the Broderick's elder daughter lost her key to Dan's house near Balboa Park in San Diego. She and her mom looked high and low for it because, quote, my dad's key was a big deal. We were supposed to guard it with our lives. But here it was, in Betty's car. And here was the gun, in Betty's purse. And here it was, the early morning of November 5th, 1989. And the key was in the lock, and the gun was in her hand, and then Betty was in Dan and Linda's bedroom. Neighbors said they heard five blasts with a slight pause between each one. I remember the real loud noise five times. And the next sounds were the last words Dan Broderick ever spoke to the ex-wife who shot him. They sounded like resignation. They sounded like, okay, you got me. I'm dead. From the Los Angeles Times, I'm Pat Morrison, and this is It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders. You better be watching. You better be watching in the dark. go and try to get wrinkles taken off your face that weren't even there. I tried to be perfect. Absolutely, flawlessly perfect for Dan Broderick. Obviously, nothing had made any difference for Betty. The cosmetic surgery and the new hairstyle, the books about midlife crises hadn't made a difference. Dan Broderick left her and took up with a woman who looked rather like a younger, happier version of herself. The sporadic counseling and psychotherapy hadn't made a dent in Betty's anxious and angry soul. The divorce trial had backfired on her. She came out of it with what she thought of as bupkis to show for 16 years of marriage and not even custody of her younger kids. Dipping into this class or course, working at a local preschool hadn't given her a new purpose. The divorce had become her job, and now that was over. Not one thing had been able to pull Betty Broderick back from the edge of screaming, despairing fury, back into reason and sense. Obviously, because a few minutes before sunup, in the second-floor bedroom of a neocolonial house in San Diego, 
There lay Dan Broderick, dead, on the floor, beside the bed he shared with his new wife, Linda. She was dead, too, in her short black-and-white pajamas. She was shot twice, in the chest and again in the back of the head. He was hit once, the hollow-point bullet passing within two inches of his heart. Two shots went astray. And there, for a moment, standing over them both, was Betty Broderick, wearing the same pink-and-white checked linen pantsuit she'd slept restlessly in the night before. Her five-shot Smith & Wesson 38 was all out of bullets for the suicide she said she went there to commit, or as she put it more gruesomely, and just splash my brains all over his damn house and so that everyone would know that I wasn't crazy. He wanted me to kill myself so that he could go on living and just say, see, I told you all she was just a nut. On a normal Sunday, the buzz in San Diego would have been about the Chargers-Eagles game, which ended in a stunner of an upset by San Diego. No, the big news that Sunday was about the La Jolla housewife who had just wasted her ex-husband and his new wife. When Betty surrendered to police, she was two days shy of her 42nd birthday. Her ex-husband and his new wife would never draw another living breath, and she would never draw another free one. The funeral was just as awful as you would imagine. Five days before, Linda and Dan Broderick were alive and delighting in their newly married lives. And now here, in the cathedral in San Diego, were hundreds of their grieving friends. And up there in front were Linda and Dan in twin coffins garlanded in white roses and red ones. People told stories about Linda's breezy unpunctuality and how, at the wedding so, so very recently... Dan had said of his new wife that her beauty was, quote, only exceeded by her sweet disposition, and how Dan, boyish and charming, had perfected a bit from The Pink Panther Strikes Again with Peter Sellers and an ankle-biting dog. Dan would drop to the floor and nip at a friend's sock. Dan did it again at dinner a couple of nights before he was murdered. None of the funny stories or wistful memories could alter the pitiless fact of those two coffins. Today, 30 years on, the people who love Dan and Linda Broderick are tired, tired and pissed off. For three decades, the woman who killed their friends and relatives has tried to bury their reputations deeper than their graves. So they've shown up for Betty's parole hearings, They listened to her and saw the, quote, smirk on her face described by the deputy district attorney who argued against her release. And with every new TV show, every book and movie, every news story and podcast, they think, there goes Betty Broderick again, making it up, making it about her, after she shot their friends dead. So yes, they're tired of this. And of the few who did talk to us, Almost none would speak on Mike. We'll hear shortly from one who did to help fill in portraits of the victims, a woman who was Linda's closest friend in the last year and a half of her life. Dan Broderick was without a doubt a brilliant, hard-charging attorney. Betty herself never questioned it even after she accused him of turning that power against her. A medical malpractice attorney is bound to rub his opponents the wrong way. Before the murders in its story about the divorce, 
the San Diego Reader quoted a veteran San Diego attorney saying, anybody who's had Dan Broderick on the other side thinks he's a royal jerk. He's so difficult to deal with. He's the coldest man you'll ever meet unless he wants something from you. But most of San Diego's legal universe was dazzled and inspired. After Dan died, his colleagues and friends created an award in his name. The Dan Broderick Award is still given each year to a San Diego lawyer who exemplifies civility, integrity, and professionalism. In 2018, Dan's good friend Brian Monahan and his wife Jerry wrote a book called When a Loved One Falls Ill, and they wrote this about the power of friendship even after Dan's death. In September 1991, 14 of Dan's and Linda's friends and relatives took a two-week trip through Ireland. Near midnight on their final night there, Monaghan wrote, the group left a pub in the village of Doolin and walked out to the cliff and dug a hole to bury their ashes. Their journey forged a lasting bond for the friends who'd honored the couple's memory. Here's George McAllister, the foreman of the jury at one of Betty's trials. I think uh, the news media was right when they said, you know, Linda was the forgotten person in this trial. I mean, it was all about Dan and Betty, and Linda was certainly forgotten. Attorney Rebecca Lack has not forgotten Linda, not for a moment. Toward the end of Linda's life, Lack was her closest friend. In fact, she represented the Colquina family at both of Betty's parole hearings. Lack went to dinner with Dan and Linda two nights before they died and spent the next day with them out on the water in their new boat. Thirty years later, she still remembers the sun on Linda's face and thinking how beautiful her skin looked. When we said goodbye, we each said, I love you, and that's something we always did. And uh, the next morning, they'd been killed. She was a perfect friend. She was kind and generous and there always there, always. No matter what time of day, uh, if I needed her, she was there. Two weeks before the murders, Linda and Dan went to the Notre Dame USC football game, the one Dan and Betty used to go to. Before they left, Linda offered their house to Lack and a friend coming to visit her. And she said, just come and stay at our house, the big mansion in Balboa Park. I didn't live in a mansion. I lived in an apartment or a condo. She said, and, and drive my Celica convertible. You can have my car for the weekend. She was so, so giving and so wonderful and light and happy and um, a joy. So I never spoke to Dan about Betty. Of course, I spoke to Linda about Betty and the nightmare that it was to be in a relationship with someone whose ex-wife was not balanced. By the time Linda and I got really, really close, the last year and a half or so of her life, a lot of this was behind her, and she didn't want to relive it again. Betty told anyone who would listen that Dan and Linda were mocking and insulting her behind her back. The Broderick's daughters would later testify that both Dan and Linda had taken to using words like crazy and sick and disgusting to describe Betty. Betty, of course, left voicemail messages calling them both names, calling Linda slut and whore and worse. Linda didn't dwell on it. Linda, it was like, yeah, okay, yeah, she called me that. She makes the kids call me that. 
it didn't get her down. It was just part of the package. I love Dan. I am marrying a man who has, you know, some baggage, an ex-wife who's not together. And it was such an honor for Linda to, to be with Dan. I asked Lack about another of Betty's beliefs, that Linda anonymously mailed her snarky ads for diets and wrinkle removers and a clipping from a legal magazine with a picture of Dan and Linda and a note with it, eat your heart out, bitch. Linda would never stoop so low. I could understand if there was a threat that Dan was thinking about getting back together with her, that she was worried about their relationship. I can kind of understand somebody being that petty. There was never any question that Dan loved Linda. Never a doubt, never a question. Never in a million years would I think Linda could have done anything like that. A few weeks before the murders, Linda asked Lack to listen to the tapes Dan made of Betty's conversations, conversations larded with obscene language that would be played with devastating effect at Betty's trials. And she said, would you listen to this and tell me what you think about these conversations Betty was having with her two sons? I bawled my eyes out when I heard how that mother spoke to her children. I couldn't believe a mother could speak to her children that way. In the last weeks before the murders, Lack says Dan was considering whether Betty was stable enough to get custody of the little boys, but with strings attached. One of the two letters that Betty got from Dan's lawyer shortly before the murders informed her that any question of getting custody of the boys would have to be conditional and limited and entirely up to Dan. Right before they were killed, Linda told me, Dan isn't going to fight anymore. If the court says she can have custody, he's thrown his hands up like, what more can I do? It's always been my theory, in fact, that she was made aware of that, that she didn't have anything more to fight with him about. And I think that's what drove her over the edge. Lack is not alone in suggesting that even if the only remnant of a relationship Betty had with Dan was fighting over the children, it was still a relationship. Without it, there was no more Dan and Betty at all. Moreover, Dan and Linda had been trying to have a baby. Betty knew it, too, according to court documents filed in her appeal. The week that they were killed, I had gone somewhere and left my car parked at their house. And when I came back the next morning to get my car, she'd left a note on my on my windshield. She just found out she wasn't pregnant right before they were killed. Every year around St. Patrick's Day, Lack joins the graveside get-together for Dan and Linda. My main reason for going is because it's mostly about Dan. And I'm there for Linda because she is a forgotten one. Yeah, both their names are on the headstone and yeah, they do talk about her some, but mostly these were Dan's friends. This is a brotherhood Linda is the one who isn't remembered as as much as Dan is. And I don't like that. I still hold her very deeply in my heart. Um, I miss her every day. I blow a kiss to her. Every time I drive up 163 from San Diego, from downtown, I blow a kiss to her, to her house where she died. 
For almost a year, Betty Broderick waited in jail for her murder trial to begin. She was not idle. It'd be another six years before the state of California banned almost all in-person, in-prison news interviews. Officials believe that television in particular had made tabloid industries out of murderers like Charles Manson, but for now, Betty was free to welcome reporters and to speak to them on the phone. And she did. The gist of the story she told, with elaborate footnoting here and moments of mythologizing there, was that she had a great marriage before Dan walked out on her, that San Diego's legal world stood pinstripe to pinstripe in solidarity with him to grind her into the ground, and that she would not knuckle under and go quietly. Surely all that anyone would have to do to understand how unjust it was was to see how different Betty and Dan's marriage looked at seven months in, with an unplanned pregnancy, odd jobs, and student poverty, compared to Linda and Dan's, with sumptuous dinners, a Caribbean cruise, and a holiday in Greece. Betty behind bars was becoming a celebrity, a kind of mascot of the woman scorned. The mail call brought her girl letters from women who said their exes and the legal system had screwed them, too. Betty was like their avenging video game avatar. To the author Bella Stumbo, Jailhouse Betty projected an eerie radiance. Quote, I loved the first year, Betty said. I needed jail. I needed the chance to hide away in my little cell to provide my own therapy. After the grinding trench warfare of Dan Broderick, jail, she said, was like R&R. To defend herself, Betty looked far afield from the legal esquires of San Diego and hired Newport Beach attorney Jack Early. For him, the vividness and vehemence of Betty's views about her marriage both helped and hurt her case. She was a difficult client in the sense of a lot going on, a very funny woman. I mean, very interesting case, parts of it very frustrating, parts of it very rewarding. Early's opponent at the prosecution table was Deputy District Attorney Carrie Wells. She headed the San Diego DA's domestic violence unit, but she'd never prosecuted a murder. Wells' path to conviction was to try to draw a straight line from a woman who had $16,000 a month from a divorce but couldn't let go, who felt cheated of wealth and status, to the murderer who trespassed at her victim's house and then killed them. For Wells, nothing that Dan or Linda Broderick had done before, during, or after the divorce could begin to justify that. It was premeditated, first-degree murder. That act is about as cold and deliberate and intentional as they come. Jack Early, in turn, promised to prove a litigious assault against Betty by a man who cared more about his professional reputation than he did about his family. With theatrical flair, Early showed the jury a collage of photos of the Broderick family, then snatched them down, one after another, to illustrate what Dan destroyed. When Betty let herself into Dan's house that last time, she took the gun, thinking that maybe it could do what the smashed mirrors and angry voicemails hadn't, get Dan to talk to her before she killed herself. Instead, Early said, either Dan or Linda saw Betty and shouted, call the police, and Betty fired the gun without even realizing it. He said that her act, quote, was one of craziness, one of emotion, one that should never have happened, but not premeditated murder. Both Broderick daughters testified. The elder for the prosecution blamed her mother for most of the conflicts in the marriage. The younger, for the defense, 
explained that when her mother said she wanted to kill someone for this or that, she said it offhandedly, not seriously. But none of the testimonies shook up the courtroom like two tapes of Betty talking on the phone with her young sons. They were agonizing to listen to. Betty told her older son that his father was, quote, absolute scum. He's cheated and lied and, using stronger language, screwed around. That money is mine. I earned it for 20 years of hard work. To which her weeping son pleaded, quote, what else do you care about besides your money and your share of things to own? Stop saying bad words. If you care about your family, you would stop saying bad words. The only thing that could outdo or undo that was Betty herself on the witness stand. Jack Early explains why he put her there. My belief is, in these cases, the presumption of innocence actually goes the other way. As jurors want to hear the story, if there's unanswered questions, it goes against the defendant. So Betty was always going to take the stand in this case. There was no doubt about it that her story had to be told, and it was very difficult to tell it without Betty telling it. The story came gushing out of her. Everything that Betty wanted to talk about in the divorce trial but couldn't. The rats in the rental house where she and the kids lived. Dan's coldness, Dan's drinking, Dan's faithlessness, the pleasure Betty believed Dan took in tormenting her. No opportunity was too small. The letters from the father of her four children that began, Dear Elizabeth Ann, and ended, Sincerely, Daniel T. Broderick. Linda, as Dan's office assistant, signing the letters, canceling the insurance Betty had had as Dan's wife, notarizing the deed to the house Betty got after the divorce. You couldn't deny it when Betty testified or when you saw her actions, that these were things that were devastating to her. Finally, Early brought Betty to the morning of the murders, to the kitchen table with the letters threatening more fines and more jail time if she kept up her, quote, odious behavior. On the stand, Betty tried to describe what was whirling through her brain. Jesus Christ, I'm turning 42 years old, and I've been put through this bull since I was 35. Seven years of my life wasted. She drove to Dan's house thinking, quote, I can't do this anymore. I can't go to court anymore. I can't go to jail anymore. I want to end it. I had to make it stop or I was going to kill myself. She described reaching Dan and Linda's bedroom door and gently pushing it open. Quote, I just stood there, Betty said, and it looked like Linda moved and she went toward Dan and Dan went toward the phone. She remembers nothing else of the shooting. Quote, they moved, I moved, and it was over. Before Betty ran out, she yanked the phone cord from the wall. Dan had spoken so clearly she wasn't even sure he'd been hit and she didn't want him to call the police on her. Betty's story meant the prosecution had to go back through its complexities to try to call her out on every possible point. This, Prosecutor Carrie Wells sought to do, with witness after witness, and by questioning Betty about her own testimony. Then, inexplicably, Wells didn't ask Betty about the murders themselves. It was a mistake she would not make again, but for now, the damage was done. Early brought to the stand Don David Lusterman, a psychologist who'd never met Betty and who didn't speak much to the specifics of her marriage, but he described a classic template where an unfaithful spouse's behavior, lying and denying, turns the cheated spouse into a hollowed-out person, quote, an uncapped volcano of pain. 
As far as Lusterman could tell, when it came to breaking up with his wife, Dan Broderick did it all wrong. Even when Dan admitted his love for Linda, meaning that Betty hadn't been imagining it, quote, she was still the crazy one. She was trying to establish her own sanity in the face of his lies. Wells wasn't buying that version of Betty at all and hammered again and again at Betty's unbridled reactions and obsessions. She summoned her own psychological experts and the conclusions of those who'd interviewed Betty over the years. They judged her to be narcissistic, so wrapped up in her own perfection that she felt she had to punish Dan for deserting her for being the one to besmirch that, quote, perfect image. To the contrary, said one of Early's experts, Betty had so little self-regard that when Dan left, the roles that had defined her vanished. Wife, mother, helpful friend, dutiful daughter, and without those propping her up, everything that had been Betty collapsed. When the lawyers were done, the jury began. The six men and six women had a choice of one of five verdicts, murder one or murder two, or voluntary or involuntary manslaughter, or not guilty. Four days later, they went for option number six. We are unable to reach a unanimous decision between murder and manslaughter for Dan or Linda Broderick. Two jurors were certain Betty hadn't planned to kill Dan and Linda, that murder was out of character for her and she couldn't be guilty of more than manslaughter. Ten were adamant that it was premeditated murder, that every threat Betty made, she meant. One of those manslaughter holdouts was Walter Polk. He was a retired military engineer whose vote would help to hang the jury and force a second trial for Betty. To Mirabella magazine, he said he thought that Dan Broderick had been, quote, ruthless in his use of the legal system. And of Betty, he said, quote, what took her so long? While she was awaiting her second murder trial, Betty busied herself with interviews and fan mail. Her two sons visited, briefly, and with supervision. Bella Stumbo wrote that on April Fool's Day, 1991, Betty called up friends and deadpan to them, I've escaped! I'm at the 7-Eleven! Come and get me! Also in the interval, Dan Broderick's businessman brother Larry had put together a letter of his own. It was advice to Carrie Wells on how the case, quote, might be better prosecuted the second time around, based on what he thought would have, quote, the most positive impact on a jury of lower middle class, less than average intelligence jurors. He wanted Wells to put the Broderick sons on the witness stand this time, quote, as late in the trial as possible, so as to have the greatest possible lasting impact on the jury. Wells did not do so. Defense attorney Early floated the notion of a plea bargain, which pleased Betty no more than it did the prosecution. The second trial originally looked like it would hold no surprises, except whether a new jury would reach a verdict or not. The case for both sides had already been put on the table. Early would again present a Betty Broderick who was, quote, an uncapped volcano of pain. But even he didn't anticipate that televising the second trial would bring out a few new witnesses willing to make bombshell claims about Dan Broderick under oath. There was one other big difference, and for Early, a big problem. In the second trial, prosecutor Carrie Wells did question Betty about the murders. 
Jack Early couldn't do much to make Betty a better witness, but Wells could force Betty back into that house, into that bedroom. Call them lies or confusion or memory lapses or contradictions. Wells was on them. This time, Betty told her attorney early that Dan had lunged for the phone, that she had screamed no, or perhaps it just, quote, felt like I let out a huge scream. I don't even know if I made a noise. It was all these flashes of things. I thought that when I got around the bed, I had a gun in my hand, and he said, you've got me. I grabbed the phone out of the wall and ran out. On cross-examination, Betty said again that she couldn't recall seeing and certainly not shooting them. Quote, I was in a totally altered state of consciousness. I moved, they moved, the gun went off. I just tensed like that. I don't remember pulling the trigger once, twice, three, four. I don't remember. Wells wasn't having any of it. Quote, you had to go up and point at her to shoot at her, didn't you? The reflex action didn't make the gun go off in the floor, did it? So you pulled the gun up and you pointed it at Linda to shoot her, didn't you? Was the gun pointed at Linda's chest when you shot her? I don't know, Betty said. I'm telling you it was dark. I didn't see Linda. I couldn't have pointed it at anybody's chest. And so forth. As Bella Stumbo wrote, Betty's version would change dramatically throughout two murder trials. It's possible, of course, that she can no longer remember what actually happened in that bedroom. It's equally possible that she remembers every bit of it. And Wells wrapped up, She's responsible for murder. Period. Early's defense plan to make Betty out as a battered woman driven to violence ran into a wall, a black-robed one. Judge Whelan limited testimony about battered women's syndrome in the second trial. Dan was never charged with any kind of abuse during his life, but at the first murder trial, Early made the case that Betty had been abused. He brought on an expert witness who testified that he believed Betty was abused in every sense of the word, physically, sexually, and emotionally. Even though Betty allowed on the stand that Dan had hit her and given her a black eye, she maintained that Dan never physically or sexually abused her. What she did argue was that she'd been emotionally abused throughout the marriage and after. In the second murder trial, then, the judge found no basis for allowing the expert witness testimony about sexual and physical battery. The witness said that limitation would make his testimony, quote, lose its meaning, and he withdrew. Emotional battery was a cornerstone of Early's defense. Not long after the murders, this is how Betty explained it to the New York Times. Quote, his was the white-collar way of beating you. If he'd hit me with a baseball bat, I could have shown people what he did and made him stop. Was Betty Broderick an emotionally battered woman? Prosecutor Carrie Wells had for years seen horribly damaged victims and prosecuted their abusers, and she wasn't going to let this woman claim that mantle. Many of Betty's supporters today believe stoutly that she was. Betty's early try at writing a memoir, the one Linda Colquina took when she went to Betty's house in search of her stolen wedding guest list, was called What's a Nice Girl to Do? A Story of White-Collar Domestic Violence. The psychologist Lenore Walker broke legal ground in 1977 when she testified about battered women's syndrome in the murder trial of a Montana woman who shot her abusive husband after he beat her, tossed her his gun, and shouted, if you don't shoot me, I'll kill you with this gun. The jury acquitted her. 
Walker says Betty's attorney asked her to work on the case and that she did some preparation for it. But Walker says Betty ultimately refused to let her participate because she then did not want to be considered a battered woman. Here Walker speaks about the trade-off she believes Betty made in killing Dan. Can you imagine, Pat, what life must have been like for Betty Broderick if she was willing to go to prison for all this? Most women would never want to do that. But battered women find prison safer. Without expert testimony supporting Early's argument that Betty had been emotionally abused, and with the prosecutor pressing Betty hard on the details of the killings and the inconsistencies in her account, the second trial went much worse for Betty. But Early still had those bombshell witnesses he hoped he could put on the stand. He looked at me and he said, I think I'm going to drive my wife crazy. There was another man sitting at the bar and he said, well, why don't you try a hitman? And then they started talking about a gun. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is the absolute craziest thing I have ever heard. I'm sorry about this whole thing, but I'm mostly sorry that that Dan Broderick chose to conduct our marriage and our family and his life the way he did. That's next time on It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders. It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders is written and reported by me, Pat Morrison. It's produced by the Los Angeles Times with support from LA Times Studios and Spoke Media. Our producers are Paige Heimson, Jenna Hannum, and Carson McCain. Our audio engineer is Will Short, and our editor is Steve Clough. We got production help from Kelly Kolf and Alicia Force. Our original music is composed by Will Short from Spoke Media. Our theme song is Better Be Watching by Haley Lynn and Kyle Devine, and our additional music came from FirstCom. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Shelby Grad, Clint Schaff, Jeff Glasser, and everyone who granted us access to their archives. It Was Simple is executive produced by Abby Fentress Swanson for the LA Times, Keith Reynolds, and Aaliyah Tavakolian for Spoke Media. If I was asked to go to trial and I was asked if those if the people that I saw at the bar were those people, I would be able to say that beyond a reasonable doubt, they were the people I saw at the bar. Would I be able to say it 100 percent? No. But would I be able to say it beyond a reasonable doubt? Yes. <laughs>